Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of politics, economics, psychology, history, and science. I'm Mark Olbert. And I'm Seth Rosenblatt. Well, Seth, we heard a fair bit from listeners after our last podcast on a very serious subject, that of the American gun culture. So we decided this one ought to be on a slightly lighter topic, wokeness and cancel culture. But Mark, the problem with this topic is that these terms can mean a bunch of different things to different people. And frankly, they aren't always used honestly. So we thought we'd have to break it down a bit for people. I agree, Seth. This is a pretty nuanced discussion. So we better start by doing a a little definition. So what do you mean by that? Okay, so let's talk about wokeness and cancel culture as two sides of the same coin. Wokeness, I guess you could argue, is a form of, you know, what we once called political correctness, although it's often used in a very pejorative sort of way. But on the other hand, it could also just be a broader awareness of social inequities, right, such as racism, sexism, other forms of social injustice. We just didn't use this particular term in the past when we discussed those before. That's a good point. And I think history has shown that the powerful are often the ones that wish to keep other less powerful people in the dark by using approaches like this. Disparaging the efforts of people to become more sensitive, more awake to others, is a way of doing that. On the other hand, it's also true that enforcing wokeness on others can be a form of intolerance, particularly if the issue that's under discussion is new or evolving. Which brings me to the second side of that coin, which is what we'll call cancel culture, which I think you could define as a modern form of ostracism, where someone is thrust out of a social circle, a professional circle, their business, etc., because of something they did. You often see it applied to uh, business people, celebrities. And yeah, it is a modern form of boycotting. It's something that's happened for years. We just have a new term for it. Sure. But I think the term could also be applied on a more micro level, perhaps within peer groups, particularly younger people, students in school, that sort of thing. The coin of wokeness and cancel culture has actually been around forever. As we've touched on here, it's been called different things and over time, and it's kind of had a different velocity of discussion, which we'll get back to a little bit later. I know an example that comes to mind right away for me is divestment in South Africa, which happened when I was much younger over their apartheid policies, was a movement that started on college campuses. It took years and it grew very slowly, but it did eventually help bring about change. That's right. But these very terms of wokeness and cancel culture seem to have a negative connotation. They somehow imply an infringement on free expression and free speech. But what's always bothered me is that feels a bit reductive and it ignores uh, a lot of context. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with that one. Definitely. The, uh, quote, right to free speech, unquote, is something that I found is generally misunderstood by an awful lot of people. The First Amendment restricts the government from regulating speech about public issues, public officials, etc., in the formation of public policy and in political discussions. It does not generally apply more broadly to other speech. Right. I know many people think that free speech means you can say anything without response or without consequences, which, of course, isn't true, right? You can't go to prison for things that you say generally, right? But you could be fired for bad-mouthing your employer, even if what you say is true. In the context of cancel culture and wokeness conflicts, the other thing that you have to keep in mind is these are public debates, legitimate public debates in many cases, if not all cases. And therefore, both sides of the speech of the person being canceled and the person doing the canceling are protected as free speech. 
Right. So I think what you're saying is, despite the fact that people claim their free speech is being violated by someone else who's also just using free speech, they're forgetting that criticism is another form of free speech or economic action, like not buying a product, is also a right that people have. In reality, the fact that people do get sensitive and concerned about this stuff is another manifestation of humans being intelligent social primates. The intelligent part makes us smart, tough, and great manipulators of our environment. The social part allows us to combine our individual skills and talents into a vastly more powerful community, which means that from an evolutionary point of view, the need to worry about what the community thinks of us is also a trait that had to be selected for, and that's why we have it. So I think what you're saying, Mark, is that if you care about being canceled, then by definition, you must feel connected to your community. That's right. Now, that doesn't mean that the cost of being canceled can't be significant, both emotionally and economically. Right, but there's a threat of being canceled, right, which in and of itself is a powerful tool for communities to sort of create, define, and sustain themselves. Like, if we eliminated the potential for being canceled, that would significantly reduce the community's ability to police itself, and it puts the community and, and all the benefits it provides at risk if we couldn't do that. Yes, and the potential for cancellation, we have to remember, is really closely related to the concept of accountability. Accountability is something that's really critical, but it's only significant in a social or a community setting. You can't be accountable to yourself. When we say we are accountable to ourselves, what we're actually saying is we're being accountable to some community expectation we believe in or have accepted. I guess what bothers me here is that the term cancel culture, when it's used particularly politically, right, it's often used as a cudgel. It's just used to further a political aim, even when it's hypocritical or intellectually dishonest to use it. <laughs> Everyone wants to cancel something at some time. That's inevitable when you take individualistic social animals and you get them to form a community. But, but somehow cancel culture in at least our country is often described as being sort of a liberal trait, right? At least by <laughs> conservatives and, and by media and whatnot, you know, such as what like college students protest against right wing speakers, for example. That's true. It is often characterized that way. But you have to remember, conservatives actively engage in the exact same kind of cancel culture. It's just less characterized that way because they are generally acting to preserve some kind of status quo ante, which everybody just accepts as, well, that's the way things are. So it reminds me about now what's happening in a lot of southern states right across the U.S. where they're actually looking to ban books. I guess that's a form of canceling, right? Yeah, and like the things that a lot of conservative icons often do where they criticize venues and media outlets like Sesame Street because they're trying to criticize something that Sesame Street is doing because they want to cancel the expression of uh, acceptance of gay characters or characters with autism or what have you. Or, or even just the new proposed law in Florida, the can't say gay law. Or the one I like even better about Florida is apparently they either are about to or have enacted a rule which says you can't even teach something to a child that offends their parents. So I guess it's fair to say that all points of the political spectrum do want to cancel things or even use the term cancel culture. But the political use as a cudgel is much more common among conservatives because conservatism is sort of predicated on maintaining the status quo. I also have to often remind myself that whenever anybody resorts to the cancel culture cudgel, while it can be effective, it's also a sign of weakness. 
because basically what it's saying is that the person has less substance to argue on. And so what they're doing is they're resorting to packaging your position as an evil trend in order to delegitimize it in some fashion. It's also the case that yelling cancel culture by whoever does it is often just a tactic to stop discussion or to lead the argument and the, the public debate into an arena where you're debating whether the proposed cancellation is legitimate in contrast to whether or not the issue that was originally being raised is one that ought to be discussed and perhaps canceled. Right. And the danger in crying cancel culture all the time is that needed change can't happen while discussion of the issue, not the discussion about the discussion of the issue. <laughs> That's exactly right. Seth, let's turn back a little bit now to talk about cancellation as a form of accountability. That's something we mentioned a couple of seconds ago. In reality, there are many forms of accountability, not just cancellation. I mean, you know, for example, that's what laws and regulations are. We're basically holding people accountable for following requirements that society wants to set on individuals. There also are contractual obligations that two or three or more parties can agree to in writing saying that we promise to hold ourselves accountable to a certain set of defined activities or standards. But that leaves out an important gap, which is basically the need for social suasion, which is, in fact, another term for cancellation as we've been discussing it. Right. But let's remember that there's a purpose to accountability, right? Because it links the behavior with the consequence so as to reduce or prevent the incident of that behavior. On the other hand, a well-functioning community requires more accountability than you can get through laws, regulations, and contracts. I mean, for one thing, none of us really want the community regulating what we say. That's why we have a First Amendment. But personal emotional costs, anger, depression, feeling disengaged from the community, demotivated, what have you, those can wreak havoc on a community if they become widespread enough because of the way people choose to interact with each other. And that, in turn, makes the community less effective and provides less benefits to all of the individuals who make up the community. So maybe, Mark, we could categorize wokeness and cancel culture as sort of this informal or non-contractual way that communities provide accountability beyond that which could be provided by laws and regulations and contracts. And it makes me think of the term I've heard uh, from others called consequence culture instead of cancel culture. Maybe that's more accurate because there is this consequence culture that can exist now more than ever because of our connectedness and the velocity of information in our modern age. I actually like that kind of alternative uh, definition or, or labeling, if you will. I think that's a lot more accurate than talking about cancel culture, because as we've talked about before, cancel culture is often used as a pejorative. You'd be hard pressed to say, well, I don't want consequence culture. I don't want any consequences to stuff. So hopefully that term will catch on. But I think we need to keep in mind that any form of accountability, including cancellation, can be overused. Uh, we don't want laws enforced to the point where if the speed limit is 65 on the freeway and we're doing 68, we get thrown in jail. So we need a more balanced and nuanced approach to cancellation. And we always need to keep in mind, as we do with so many other things, understanding context is really important. All right. So let's talk about context, right? So when we look at any particular example of someone claiming, quote unquote, cancellation, let's analyze it in its specific context because they vary widely. Well, let's start with a really simple one criminal activity. 
there, of course, there are some people who want to cancel. I can't imagine anybody other than Harvey Weinstein himself doesn't think Harvey Weinstein shouldn't go to prison, as is also the case with Derek Chauvin for what he did to George Floyd. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think criminal activity is in a category all to itself. So let's talk about something a little more maybe nuanced. Let's talk about cancellation in the context of private businesses, right? When maybe a business changes the name of a product or changes how it does something or how it manages its business based on, you know, feedback it gets from customers, right? So um, that's, a, that's a little different because that's really in some way just the accountability of the free market at work, right? And the reason why it's different now than maybe it was in the past or it ever was in the past is because there's a lot less friction in information sharing about people, about products, et cetera, today than there ever was. So it's a lot easier for people to respond to, oh, this company, you know, should be doing something different. The way I see it, this is most often really just private businesses responding to the needs and demands of their customers. I mean, Aunt Jemima maple syrup was called that for years because it was an attractive thing to the typical consumer. Now it's not an attractive thing at all, so they changed it to the Pearl Milling Company. And this happens with sports teams. And although a lot of people get really upset about this for some reason, the Washington Redskins are just responding to effectively the market when they change their name to the Washington Commanders or the Cleveland Indians changing to the Cleveland Guardians. We do have to keep in mind, though, that accountability doesn't come without cost, including to those actually enforcing accountability. We each have to decide if enforcing accountability for a company's behavior, say, is worth foregoing the benefits of the products that they sell. And that's an increasingly important issue because nowadays we know more about every single business we deal with than we ever have before in history. Uh, Yeah, there's a part of me, Mark, that says if we knew everything there was about every business that we deal with, we wouldn't buy anything. Right. Because there's always something that some company is doing that we don't like. So we sort of have to compartmentalize that issue and decide on our own. Is it a big enough deal? And I think about like my pillow versus Apple. My pillow has this crazy guy in charge of the company who's actively trying to, you know, promote totalitarianism in this country, has materially hurt our democracy. I could go, you know what? I don't need his pillow. Apple, on the other hand, probably does some pretty bad things, a lot of which I don't know about. It probably doesn't treat labor very well in, in many markets. There's, I'm sure there's things that if I knew more about, I would not be very happy, but I really like my iPhone. So we, we have to compartmentalize, decide what works for us. And we also you know, have to admit that we're sort of situationally outraged when it doesn't hurt us as much personally. That kind of increased uh, need for nuance is a great transition to the next category I think we should talk about, which has to do with media and art and celebrities. I mean, think about South Park. It's a wonderful example of uh, a casual piece of art that, like much art, is often criticized and boycotted or threatened to be boycotted because of something that it says or, or displays. But what you have to remember is, like all art, you're not forced to watch South Park. And it makes me think of actors or actresses that have been or at least claim to have been canceled in some way. So I think of like a Kevin Hart, right, who made uh, a joke that was homophobic, I guess, some years ago, or he sent a tweet and, you know, he basically was told, "Okay, I'm sorry, you're not going to host the Academy Awards again. Right. Uh, But then I contrast him with someone like a Mel Gibson, who was caught in his personal life, right, saying really racist and anti-Semitic things on tape. And We have to draw a distinction. Those are two different things. I'm not saying you have to like Kevin Hart or not like Mel Gibson, right? But certainly Kevin Hart's actions were in the context of 
his performance, his comedy, his art. And Mel Gibson's, on the other hand, were more just we happen to have a reveal of his personal life. I think what you're highlighting here is that, like with so many other things, intent is critical. And unfortunately, intent is always hard to judge because we don't read minds. I, I heard a phrase the other day from a comedian, which I which really struck home when we were talking about this topic and getting ready for the recording. Everyone enjoys a good laugh, but no one likes being laughed at. I had personal experience of that many years ago. One of the first dates that Barbara and I went on, we uh, went to a comedy club and uh, we happened to, by accident, be seated in the second row center, like literally right in front of the comedian. And at one point she had to go up and, and go to the restroom. And I leaned over to her and said, please don't do that. Please don't do that. And she said, look, I just, <laughs> I just need to go. I really need to go. I said, please. And she said, I'm going. So she got up. And of course, I instantly became the butt of all of the jokes for like the next five minutes <laughs> from right, the comedian. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it is hard sometimes to tell intent, but at least in the concept of comedy, for example, right, you could ask yourself a few questions, right? Is someone just going for a laugh or, rather than intentionally degrading others? Like in the case, I imagine the case of uh, you at the comedy club, he probably wasn't <laughs> personally picking on you because he didn't like the way you looked, right? He just saw the opportunity to go for a laugh, right? Um, also, in many cases, comedians are parroting things that we find offensive, right? And maybe being offensive as part of the parody. Is that the context? Uh, very often, uh, Ricky Gervais also talks about how the audience very often mixes up the subject of the joke and the object of the joke and, re and really delving into that. All of what we're talking about here highlights the fact that there are an awful lot of gray areas involved when you try and talk about accountability and cancellation. Right. Particularly when it comes to things like art, right? Yes. And media. Yes. Um, so let's go something that's probably a little more concrete. Let's talk about government, because it feels like there's almost a limitless number of examples of politicians who either don't understand that their speech and actions have consequences or they'll cry cancel culture to avoid those consequences. I mean, I could think of a few off the top of my head. Uh, I can, too. Let's start with one of my favorites, Brett Kavanaugh and his supporters who were crying cancel culture, basically to make sure that investigations, which it seemed to me like they were legitimate questions uh, uh, to be researched, didn't get looked into in any kind of depth. When arguably they really should have, given the fact that we were talking about appointing somebody to the Supreme Court for life. <laughs> right. And in all fairness, let me give you an example of the other side of the aisle, right? Andrew Cuomo. I mean, he's been still crying cancel culture, right, to distract people from what probably appeared to have been credible allegations of criminal acts himself. Which highlights again that cancel culture or crying cancel culture is not the sole property of either the right or the left, even if it's more common on the conservative side. Each of those people demanded the use of an invalid standard to be applied to their situation. They basically wanted the standard used in court in legal actions to be used. But in reality, electing somebody governor or appointing somebody to the Supreme Court is a purely political act and consequently different and by different, I mean more nuanced, less objective standards must and should apply. Right. And very often it's just being voted out of office, right, by a majority of the people who vote in that particular election. Right. That's right. You have no right to office, even if you've been there before. So that makes me think of like historical figures. And I know particularly in the last few years, this has been a really big issue, whether it comes to like statues and what do we do about certain statues, maybe names of buildings, names on schools and is a hard issue to think about because sort of history is always viewed through a certain lens and that makes both the observer and his or her context 
and the observed in their context pretty important. In addition, the definitions of what constitutes something that's unlawful or something that's lawful, as well as what we think of as good and bad, those things change over time. And beyond that, there's the question of why and how a community decides to honor one historical figure over another. The community's intent matters. And as we talked about, judging intent is really hard. Although I'm a bit in the minority because I've never been a big fan of naming kind of anything after people, <laughs> um, in part for this reason, but also in part because I think it's hard to choose someone to honor over other people. But fundamentally, we have to recognize that assigning a name to anything or putting up a statue is a political decision, right? Not a legal one. Which means that the decision to name something after somebody can be revised or overturned by another decision. That's one of the differences between legal decisions which have the power of precedent and political ones which can change from moment to moment. Unfortunately, the assignment of a name often gets, and I think this is what you're reacting to when you say you're not a big fan of it, the assigning of a name to something gets imbued with a lot more significance for people beyond the mere fact of its being a political choice. Yeah, for sure. It's funny, I hired a historian on the radio a few weeks ago who was talking about this issue had said something like that we might be better off if we put time limits on the <laughs> names of things or on statues. And I thought that was actually a very interesting you know, idea. I like that idea. I, I'm surprised that nobody's actually done that. You know, we use sunset clauses in legislation fairly frequently for the exact same reason. You want to require some kind of periodic reevaluation of whether your earlier decision and choice is the one that you still want to continue to use. So let's talk about what I can think of sort of the last context of when cancel culture potentially is being used. And this is the one where I think in some way is the most disturbing, uh, less about accountability per se. This is when it's really done among peer groups. And it seems to happen more and so among young people, from what I hear of various family members and what have you, um, that there's definitely a concern that there's less tolerance that there once was among peer groups for someone who, let's say, makes a mistake or says the wrong thing or expresses a, a contrary opinion. And that that level of peer pressure may be combined with social media and what have you sort of could leave create this sort of social canceling um, and isolation uh, from groups, which certainly is is not a healthy thing. That's an unfortunate example of how cancellation tactics, even if they're necessary for a community's health, can certainly be destructive. Communities are built on communication among individuals, and consequently, canceling all expression would destroy a community because it fragments it into a, a group of unconnected individuals who can't benefit from each other. Right. And we've talked about this in other podcasts, but it feels like all public community principles have this need to strike some sort of balance, right? Too much of, uh, in the case of canceling, right, too much canceling eliminates this possibility of community, but too little of it also leads to the disintegration of the community itself. In either case, the result, the loss of community, is highly undesirable. I mean, that we want to keep our communities because they make us much better off as individuals. And perhaps an example of trying to strike a balance is the trend that we now see in people's use of pronouns and new types of pronouns. To be clear, I am very supportive of this trend. I feel people can use whatever pronouns they like. I like the fact that we're highlighting the notion that gender is not a binary thing. But I think it's also, we also have to recognize, particularly for old farts like ourselves, who have been used to something for half a century or more, that sometimes we make a mistake. 
right? And we call someone by a pronoun that maybe that's not what they go by because we're not used to it yet. So on some level, we could be supportive of the overall trend and actually be excited about it. But also in return, I think people need to be somewhat forgiving sometimes that people mess up as we're going through this process. Another example of something that's been in the news a lot lately, which is uh and what I've been really interested in watching evolve has to do with public statues. Let's consider statues of Robert E. Lee, which are recently subject of being torn down, and George Washington, which I don't know of anybody who's talked about tearing down a statue of George Washington, but maybe there is somebody. Both Robert E. Lee and George Washington were slave owners. Both were traitors to their country because they fought to carve a new nation out of an existing country. Both acted out of self-interest. Both acted to preserve freedom for at least some people other than themselves. But, and there's always a but, here's, here it is, one of those guys worked and fought to establish a community dedicated, at least on paper, to increasing liberty. The other worked and fought to preserve a system based on enslaving people, which is why at the end of the day, Washington, I would argue, is justifiably and commonly deemed a better and more honorable figure than Robert E. Lee and more deserving of having his statues stay up. And certainly more connected to the country we now call the United States of America. Absolutely. Um, even if he was a flawed figure. Um, so although I think you and I are both generally supportive of these progressive trends, there is also another type of complaint that, quote unquote, wokeness may be nothing more than this other term called virtue signaling, which is a sort of another pejorative term, right, for the expression of sort of a moral viewpoint only with the intent of communicating your own good character. And sometimes this may be the case uh, but also, just like cancel culture, sometimes it's just used politically as a cudgel. That reminds me of something we've talked about several times, uh, not necessarily in these podcasts, about uh, the effort that the San Francisco School District went in over the last few years to rename schools, which, for those of our listeners who aren't in the Bay Area, it actually cost a number of members of the San Francisco School Board their jobs because they were recalled from office. And I'm not talking about the wisdom or lack thereof of pursuing name changes in the midst of a pandemic, but even just looking at what they were trying to do, they were looking to rename 44 schools, schools named after Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and even Dianne Feinstein, a senator from long-term senator from California. And though I think some could argue that they had good intentions, I think the part of the balance they were missing was they really could have used all of that sort of as a teaching moment, right, rather than a canceling moment, right? Yep. The idea is like, don't stop the discussion about George Washington or Lincoln. Talk about their flaws. Talk about the good things they did. Talk about the bad things they did. Talk about how we look through history through a different lens. Have more discussion. That would have been useful, particularly in the case of a school district, which is all about education. Absolutely. And that just highlights the fact that nobody walks on water. And beyond that, we also have to remember communities evolve and they evolve both over time and space. The environment is constantly changing, often as a result of community efforts to change it. And what that can do is that can make accepted truths suddenly become wrong or no longer right as, as a result of the environment changes. It's kind of related to the fact that it, it's pretty much the case that every generation ends up generally questioning the truths, the accepted wisdom from the prior generation. Right. But our view of sort of cancellation tactics has been disrupted in this generation, right, by our sort of vastly increased connectedness. Uh, like you said, they've always been used because laws and regulations and contracts, you know, can't do the entire job. But this increased connectedness in the modern age makes potential targets of cancellation much more visible. 
Yeah, I remember being told years ago about how it used to be the case that people in Indiana didn't have to react to what those nuts out in California did and vice versa, because neither of them really impinged on each other in any significant and not easily ignorable way. I mean, yeah, you might have seen it on the TV news, but, you know, that was half an hour a night with Walter Cronkite. You could turn it off and go about your life. That's no longer really the case. It's it's not only almost impossible not to understand and see what a lot of other people are doing, but it's so easy to figure out what they're doing that many of us have started devoting a lot of time to studying and analyzing behaviors of people that normally we would have just ignored. But despite that, Mark, I, what the thing that bothers me a lot about this sort of notion of cancel culture, whether it really exists on some level, is I think to like... How many people have really been canceled? It feels a bit overblown to me. And I'm not counting the ones who arguably deserved it, like people committing crimes, of course, right? But for everyone else, has there been actually a lot of cancellation or just talk of cancellation? <laughs> you know, that also reminds me of the old adage, there ain't no such thing as bad publicity. Kevin Hart is still a successful comedian and perhaps arguably even a more successful comedian for having been attempted to be canceled. And uh, to use another example we touched on before, last time I checked, South Park is still on the air. And in fact, the only real example I could think of, or a counterexample to that, uh, of someone who did get canceled, and ironically, from his own side of the aisle, was actually Senator Al Franken. I can't think of many more. Okay, Mark, uh, let's wrap this up then. Uh, let's give our listeners some recommendations, right, for talking about wokeness and cancel culture and putting it all in the context it deserves. First and foremost, what we need to keep in mind, as we say in many, many occasions in these podcasts, it's all a matter of balance. Cancellation, as we've talked about, is a form of accountability, and you don't want to reject holding people accountable for what they say and do. It's necessary for a community to function. Instead, my recommendation, my advice would be keep your focus on the big things. Keep your focus on the forest issues, not the trees. Right. Or the pond rather than the lily pad, right? <laughs> oh, I wish I'd thought of that. You know, the other thing to, that I'd recommend people think about doing is we all need to evolve how we consume social media. I think everyone knows that it's a powerful tool for holding people, companies and governments accountable. But it certainly can be overused. I think, you know, there's no better example than you talked about among uh, peer groups of young people and and pummeling themselves about stuff. On the other hand, it's also important to recognize that that social media function can even be used to push back against inappropriate charges of cancel culture. I saw that happen in Nextdoor in San Carlos. Initially, it frequently got dominated by trolls. But over time, what ended up happening is people realized they could use the platform to push back against the trolls. And that's what they did. I also think as far as social media is concerned, we need to remember not to just blindly accept whatever we read just because it looks realistic or it looks accurate. I mean, the tools for creating valid appearing misinformation are way too powerful nowadays to ignore. Even I, with my relatively primitive Photoshop skills, can do all sorts of things that you would find, oh, that's a real picture, but it's not. And I think we all know this intellectually, but it seems like we keep forgetting that social media is a really bad forum for any form of nuanced or complex discussion because it really loses a lot of context. And and I think it's where you can find yourself, you know, quote unquote, virtual signaling uh, without actually making a difference or, or sometimes making the problem worse. Or you could end up committing yourself to a perspective that you'll never get out of because humans naturally avoid the cognitive dissonance right, required to do so. <laughs> 
I'll also point out a little secret hit that our listeners may not be aware of. You know, these podcasts typically run between 25 and 40-ish minutes. Uh, we actually put in not only the recording time, but we probably put in about six hours of discussion ahead of time, figuring out what we're going to say. That's all of the context stuff that we have to take care of, and that's all the time and effort it takes to try and include it. On a personal level, though, I'd also say a piece of advice that I know I try to follow, particularly in our highly connected world these days, is to be more tolerant and more humble and more forgiving when I interact with other people, especially when it appears, or I suspect, or it's possible that the intent that of the comment that I'm normally going to have a strong negative reaction to, that the intent of offering it is honest in some fashion. Right. And Mark, that goes to your first point about balance, because recognizing tolerance requires some level of accepting things you do not like, but at the same time, you have to find what you can do to make a change in, in many cases. So how do we, on a societal level, be less tolerant, but in less destructive ways? That's a really great rhetorical question, which I think we all need to keep in mind. The last point I'd make is I think we need to recognize and sense when a discussion of cancel culture is really all about politics. When someone cries cancel culture, stop and think for a second about what their motivation is. Are they raising a legitimate interest of community concern that maybe there's uh, inappropriate cancellation going on? Right. Or are they just merely trying to enlist you and helping them serve their own interest by perhaps actually right. shutting down needed conversation? Right. Absolutely quite right. A bit. Yeah. Remembering that so much of this is ultimately about politics, I think is a great place to wrap up. Well, I got to say, Seth, that was a really fun and interesting discussion. Agreed. And I think there's a lot more to talk about in the future. So, <laughs> uh, but we'll close here. So thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, signing off. This is Seth. And Mark. Hoping you don't cancel your subscription to The Boiling Frog. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.